Professors FM. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome to the Emory Marketing Analytics Center podcast series, jointly sponsored with the Fanalytics podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Lewis. I'm a professor of marketing at Emory University and the faculty director of the Marketing Analytics Center. Today, we are joined by, and this is going to be a good one, especially from my perspective, because this is someone I'm really eager to talk to, Damian, Damian Bazadana from Situation Interactive. And, and look, I, I've, Damian, you knew I was going to fumble with your name just because we were talking about the pronunciation at the beginning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And, and the reason why I'm so eager to have Damian on the in the in the podcast series is that he's got a set of experiences that I find absolutely fascinating. So, you know, I'm very eager to dig in. So, Damien is the president and founder of Situation Interactive, a, a digital agency. But the list of the clients is where I kind of get wild right after the bat. So, the clients include the Empire State Building, the Metropolitan Opera, HBO, Major League Soccer, Wicked, National Geographic, the Guggenheim, Disney Theatrical Group, and Roundabout Theatrical uh, Theater Company. Um, so, Damien, when I am, um, when I approach what I do, and I tend to use the construct of fandom as something that kind of uh, a construct that unifies, you know, gives me a framework. Whether I'm dealing with something in sports or politics or even brand marketing. So I want to start off with kind of a high-level question, and it's almost a philosophical question. Given the diversity of what you look at, what's kind of your core principles in, in thinking about how all this fits together? I think, again, thanks for having me, because I, I love to geek out in this conversation, too. Um, is it it's my whole, I've kind of centered my whole life on this business. <clears throat> for the last 20 years, I've been having conversations relating to fandom and audiences and things like that. You know, our, I think it comes down to, when I think about all the different uh, businesses that would vertical industries that we work with, and <clears throat> it all comes down to the sense of community. Hmm. And, you know, our business is centered on this idea of building passionate communities and moving them to meaningful action. That's what we try to, that's what I do for a living. And I think that's what uh, approaching and thinking about fandom is really about. And how do you kind of create a sense of community? How do you build passionate communities? And I think the key word is passion. That to me is sort of the currency of all of it. Every, all of us have a passion for something. And some people say, no, no, I really don't. But if you really start scratching the surface on most people, there's a lot of passion that, that people have. There's all sorts of things. Now we default in our conversation, we might default to sports or the arts or theater. Um, and it's very clear there. I mean, the person that wakes up and paints himself blue at seven in the morning, to then go sit in a parking lot for five hours and then watch a game. I mean, that's about the extreme of passion. Oh, well, okay. Um, okay. So where, where's just to dig a little deeper, where does the passion come from? Oh, I think it comes with a whole bunch of ways, a whole bunch of things. Some of it, like I could talk about the theater business, a lot of business, it is a, uh, an acquired taste, right. Of like people who grew up and a lot of times it connects to people's youth and childhood, what they grew up doing. And so for example, if you went to the theater as a child, 
you're significantly more likely to go to theater as an adult. And it's the same in the sports league. Know this too. It's kind of, it's, it's just kind of a, a thing that you kind of grew up on. That you grew. So youth is, is obviously a big one. And, and the people you sort of surround yourselves with. And there's a lot of research that shows that. So it's, so it's the memories, it's the experiences. And, and I, I think what you're telling me is it's like the formative years are really kind of key to, you know, maybe is it more difficult to develop passion in an adult than you know, if you get someone at 27 versus if you get someone at seven? Well, I, it's a good question. I don't, I'm not sure because the other side of it, I'd say part one is what your kind of what your, your lived experience is and what you grew up around. The other is, is it's, it's also viewed as a behavior and, and where you are in a certain portion of your life. So I always view theater. If you look at the demographics for theater, they're typically 45 plus. And if you look at the 45 plus age wise, in terms of at, a, at an aggregate, right? It's also something you do as an older person. Because older people want to hang with other older people. And where do older people go? They go to those environments of like theater, the arts, the opera. So sometimes I feel like, no, passion is also aligned with what's in your moment, right? So I didn't grow up. I'll just give my example. I grew up, I didn't see theater at all in my life. And up until probably 21 or 22, I might have saw my first Broadway musical and I was like 20 or 21. By the time I was 25 or 30, I was probably representing half of Broadway shows as a career. And I had no, it was, it was something that just, came, I just landed in my lap, like kind of luckily. So I'm a big believer. You can find passion. I think it's very hard to say how you're going to find your passion. That is, that is a tricky, like, that is a, like, there's a lot of conversation around that, um, of what's possible. Um, my business centered, my, I can tell you my specialty, I feel like is, is, I, is, is matching someone's passion to action not necessarily helping someone find their passion, but it's a great question because it can, there's a lot of different, um, there's a a lot of, we spent a lot of conversation around what are we doing today to build future audiences for the businesses we work on. I I, kind of want to deviate a little from my, my plan for this conversation. Was it tough to start to represent these, the, these theater and these Broadway shows as an outsider? No, not in, sort of yes, but I was fascinated by it. Okay. I think the idea of going into a theater, I mean, you have to remember, I was probably 24, I was young, but I was probably 24, 25 at the time. And I'd go into, a, I've never, I've been to, when you start working with these shows, you go in, and I'm looking around going, oh my God, people come to this theater every night in a Broadway theater, spend a hundred plus dollars a ticket mm-hmm. for a story. And then they do it again the next night and they do it eight times a week, which is crazy. And I was, it, to me, that's fascinating that people spend this kind of money. As a young kid, I'm kind of like, it's amazing. And you get dressed up and you feel good. the whole environment, the experience, what you're selling. And then you go to the opera and you go to like Metropolitan Opera. It's a remarkable experience. And you go and you feel like you're transported to another world. And so the, um, no, I thought as an outsider, I thought that was actually one of my edge, the edge I had. I didn't take it for granted. I thought it was unbelievable. Well, and, and, and how I was kind of introduced to it. Well, you know, because as you describe these groups and, and look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna claim to be a complete outsider to the opera and to the theater, which is why I love I love the conversation we're having. It, it sounds like you're describing them as they're almost sub, subcultures. Like there's a theater subculture, there's an opera subculture, and whenever we have a subculture, and, and look, this this happens in sports. It happens in Star Trek. Those subcultures tend to be, you know, they've got their own way of doing things, right? Their own bodies of knowledge, their own histories, right? Their own kind of legends and lore, right? And, and shared memories and moments. 
And so is part of coming it from how you do, do you have to pick up on that? Do you have to almost work as an anthropologist and understand these tribes, as it were? Yes, you do. Because you're on any anytime you try to build a community, you're going to start with your core and then expand from your core, right? So if the core group of people, it's the same as sports. Like I think at Major League Soccer, if you go to a, a soccer match, there's the supporter groups, there's chants and everyone going on, and then there's everybody else, right? That kind of sits around. And so to really bring a community together the, at this more authentic form. And by the way, all the outsiders attract to the community. There's something extremely exciting. You know that you're an outsider. You're drawn to that. That's what creates the passion and the energy. So for each circle you go into, yeah, it's a part of my job to understand the language of how people operate. If you're in the, again, if you're in the Broadway business, you should know the difference between a play and a musical. And if you don't know the difference between a play and a musical, then it's hard to connect with someone who's an, you know, a, a diehard fan for that. I would say, though, if you really look at the numbers for most of things, and I think it applies to sport. I'm a huge Giants fan. I'm a big sports fan myself. Um, if you look at the a very small percentage of the people are the purest of fans. And then there's everybody else. And so you try to create this balance of that inside outside where you can go and experience it and not have to be so far on the inside, but you maintain a sense of the inside because that's where the excitement and the energy that people attract to want to be a part of at the same time. It's an interesting, it's a very, very interesting kind of dynamic. And, and, and the last thing I'll say is, again, all of these things, also, there's so much intersectionality between fandom and what are we a fandom of? If you come to New York City, seeing a Broadway show is a bucket list experience. It almost doesn't matter what show you see, you're going to go home. It does matter, but I'll talk about it in a second. But you're going to go home and you're going to say, well, what did you do in New York City? I went to go see a Broadway show. So in that world, sense of place is almost the extent is, is a connector of fandom. It was a thing to do. And now you feel you're part of this. It's almost like going to, it's like restaurants in certain communities. You go to Philadelphia, you eat a cheesesteak. You, you start to really think through what connects people to these things. And there's all these different things intersect on how you kind of introduce a fan into that universe. They come for all different reasons. And for depending on the business that we work on, our job generally is you want to get someone in and turn them more and more into the community and fans so they stay around for a while. But they come from very, it's, it's, each thing is entirely different. I could take each property. I could take one broad, I could take the Broadway industry and take one musical versus another musical. Entirely different. They share an enthusiast, a very small group of enthusiasts that are like, I'm going to go see every piece of theater. But majority of people coming from tourism, they come from all over the world. They're different. What's the, um, what's the breakdown of, and, and maybe the, you can refine my language on this, between that that core group and this casual fan, is it is it like, the way you're talking about? It almost sounds like it's an eighty twenty kind of rule. Kind of the only the difference with theater is again it's different than a lot of other industries. I think in the sense of it's very expensive, so it depends on a kind of which sort of industry we're talking about. Like if Broadway is a shiny example, Broadway uh, there, there's kind of two parts of the equation. One is there's a pretty large transient group of people just based on tourism. It used to when I first came in the industry. It was about 20 years ago. It was about 60% of the industry for Broadway, somewhere around there, 50 or 60% was the local, considered local, boroughs of New York City, surrounding area, within 100 miles, roughly. As tourism has boomed and there's variable ticket pricing and all these other changes, some audiences are 70 to 80% tourists. Hmm. And so it's significantly different, which is newer people coming into the pipeline. It's different. Um, but the thing is, there's a, a stat, like most people who attend, if you're going to spend, you want to go see a show, a good show, 
two, two, 200 to $250 a ticket. Okay. You got three people in your party on average. You got to get a, maybe you got to park. You got all those things. It's over $1,000 for a trip to, to see a show. So it is, you have to have, and, and you look at the research, most people have experienced it or they treat it as a one-time event. So it's, it's kind of, it's hard to, it's not, um, again, each one is very different. If you were to look at, we work in the performing arts as well. If you take a local arts center or a local a community, not a community center, a large cultural institution, most of the people in there have experienced or grew up with an affinity to the arts. There's no question. Okay. So, I mean, big dollars. I mean, this is, this is more expensive than going to an NFL game. Uh, slightly or i mean i guess depends what city you're going to the nfl game in um now you're you're emphasizing this community and that's an incredibly interesting and fascinating word to me it's like this this community that people want to be a part of which strikes me the word that comes to mind is there's something aspirational about the community so we've got this core 20 percent of you know broadway people they live they live for this stuff what and then we've got this other group that comes in. It's a once in a lifetime experience. What's what's their connection to that community? Um, they just want to say that they were on Broadway because it's kind of the height of something in American culture. They want to be in the know with that core group. What's their connection to this? It sounds like the community has multiple layers. How does that work? Yeah, and like people connect to things from, again, that's why it's hard to lump it, right? So I'm sure there's, 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 and when we look at it, it you're trying to, what motivated someone to go? So some, like, sort of, again, I'm using Broadway just as an example because it's pretty straightforward, right? So it depends on the show. Like say Dear Evan Hansen is a show that really deals with the sense of wanting to connect and feel belonging. It's so centered on that idea. So there are people that see that show connect to the story so deeply. Theater is, remarkably powerful about putting a mirror to ourselves and people connect with that show and then they leave, right? And they either go back home or something like that. In the theater business, there's not a lot of repeat buying for the same show. It's like how many times you watch the same movie and never mind the same movie, you're going to spend $300 for that movie every time. There's not that much of that. You go see it once, but then the community begins to expand where you start with the music, for example. We have clients for very common for us. Um, we would create someone to go see a show then they're going to listen to the music either on Spotify, they may buy the album, merchandise or something like that. And then over time, we do uh, like viewing release parties where fans from around the world who many of them, by the way, don't even have never even seen the show. Most, I have to tell you, most, this is very important, to, uh, important stat. Most who haven't even seen the show are um, labeled themselves as, as uh, let me phrase, I'm sorry. People who haven't seen the show are just as likely to call themselves a fan of the show than people who did see the show. It doesn't matter whether you've seen the show or not seen the show. You will, and what's even more staggering about it is they will go refer it to somebody else to go see whether or not they saw it. People, it's fascinating. People align with what they want it to be. So, and, so, yeah. Yeah, so the passion is... Is the passion towards the entity of Broadway or is it towards the specific shows? I think it's a, it's a combination of a reflection of your values as a human. And, and it really aligns this way. It's like people who support the arts, for example. Okay. They go to the opera. They believe in that. They believe it's good. They, they, they want to be associated with it. So for some, it's that. It's essentially, I support this. And the arts falls in that category. It's a big one. 
how we support things and how we view ourselves and what's very important. So I'd say a big part of it is, is, a section, is, is essentially a reflection of ourselves as to why, of, of kind of how they approach it. I think that's a, a big, a big, big part of it. Okay. Follow-up question. You know, given the structure of this business, not a lot of repeat buying, what does the data look like? You know, whenever you're trying to understand, you know, a fan community, in, in, in sports, it's, it's kind of easy now. We've got massive databases. We can see what someone did for 20 years. How do you get your head around quantifying? I mean, so we've been talking at this point mostly about the, you know, the, the intuition behind all this. You're also in, very much in the data business. What does the data look like that you work with on something like this? Well, I think there's important, our business, is again, depends on the industry. On Broadway, we don't necessarily look at the lifetime value on an individual brand level. So when we talk about building passionate communities, effectively, our in that world, it's kind of building people in advance of seeing a show. We market really based on behavior. Most of our money is not spent against a demographic. It's primarily spent against a behavior. A, a, a simple version of that is Googling Broadway tickets you are showing a very clear intent. Because for me to have you from a live ticketing perspective, you have to take a whole range of actions to even make that a reality. That's always line, passion versus practicality. That's our whole business. There's two headwinds going right at each other. So in order for me to go, I really want to sell Mike a pair of tickets to a Broadway show. Okay, that's at least $400. You also need to be able to, uh, I don't know if you have children or not, you have to get a babysitter, for example. You have to then commute into the city and so all these things have to kind of fall in place. So if I'm going to put a message towards you, I have to make sure you even have the means, capacity, the ability, the timing. It, it's only one time a day, eight o'clock. And so all these dynamic variables are sort of at play. So for us, the data, usually where we start is we're trying to look at, are you in a position? Are you showing interest, first of all, of doing this kind of thing and then leaning into it? You, like we, I'll just give you a, a real examples on us. We work with brand. We work with gigantic brands that also have a live presence. Brands like Tina Turner, Michael Jackson. These are massive global brands, and they happen to have really amazing Broadway musicals. I can't just tap into that fandom and say, "If you like Tina Turner, you're going to want to buy this ticket." I'd run out of money. I'd, my marketing budget would run out in a minute. Global presence. I need to understand that not only do you want that identity, but you want that identity as it relates to this live performance. The sports deals with this massively. You're going to be a gigantic Giants fan. But if I'm in the ticketing department, I'm selling tickets for the New York Giants, for the noise and the ways in which you could consume that brand in all different ways, they're solely focused on someone who has intention or past history of saying, I want to be there. Um, so the from us, the analytics is centered on your, your likeliness of a behavior of doing that specific thing, less about it, it's, a, it's an important, as much as valuable as your affinity to the brand itself. Yeah, look, that's really interesting to me because I think there's a, I think there's an important lesson in there for a lot of business people. It, it strikes me that what you're saying, and correct me, feel free to correct me, that you are, <laughs> the data, the data almost has, has like a tactical feel to it. You see something, you see a pattern, you re, but you realize it's a very, and then you react to that pattern, but you realize it's a very incomplete view of what the, you know, what the fan looks like, right? Because you're not seeing what they did when they were seven years old. You're not, you, you know, customer lifetime value is important, but you're not tracking it, right? So you got this conceptual model, but the data is kind of tactical and reactionary. 
Pretty much. And I think, look, at, at the end of the day, it's also the, the, um, our business, again, is slightly different. If you're in sports, the lifetime value is everything. If you're in the theater as an individual brand, it's not. It just isn't. It's just different. It shows you already know how the story begins and ends. Now, I know how the story begins for the Giants every year. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's, just, it's just very, it's different um, in that way. So I, I, to, to us, it's almost like just trying to tap into really understand. Well, first off, the, the, just putting data aside. I would just say, and this is just the spirit of how we think about everything here in fandom, is respect your fans. And I, that gets lost. It gets completely lost. And as a lot of event person, we spend a lot of time on, particularly in sports. Sports, I think, has gotten completely lost touch with the actual fans who schlep into the stadiums and give good money and sit there and invest their time, energy, and effort into this. The purity of like what makes fandom a fandom. I think they lost total sight of that about, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. I think things have gotten better, but I wouldn't bring my kid. I was like nervous about security, all those different things. I'm kind of going, this is ridiculous. You have a better chance. This is what you think about fandom. I'm a Giants fan. I've been a Giants fan for a very long time. I will tell you right now, you have a way better chance of getting a tourist who's coming into New York City for a weekend to go, oh, I want to experience New York City. Recruiting that person to say, you can go to an NFL game than getting me as a Giants fan who lives 25 minutes from the stadium to go to Giants Stadium. Because under I'm like, no way. I'm a Giants fan. I'll watch it on my TV. It's better. And, and or for the, the way I've felt about the team, all those different things. So it's not, I think it's important, is the, the, the way we have to think about how we're bringing people into the community, which is a sophisticated game looking at intention and behavior, but never losing sight. It is extremely difficult. I don't believe enough time is, and, and energy is invested in, make, in, in valuing the fan. It just doesn't. They, they take them for granted. There's not budgets don't generally support it. They, they just don't. And I feel like there's so much more. That's so why I like, yeah. So what are you, you're getting at? You, th- you think sports lost it in terms of something about the, the customer experience, something on the back-end I care? That. I do. I, that's my personal. And versus, it depends what industry we're talking about. But I would say as a window of time, Look, it's hard. The last couple of years have changed a few things, but I would say in general, that's I was impressed with what Major League Soccer did. I'm impressed with the the, the thinking. Let's put it that way, mm-hmm. and the thinking is centered on let's create smaller event. They essentially tightened up the venues to create a far better experience. You feel like you're part of a of like a yeah. fandom component. It just feels more naturally. It feels smaller. It feels more intimate, um, and. I, I appreciated that. I feel like there's a little bit more connection to the team. I think when I go to some of the venues, yes, I do not feel as though as a Giants fan and or as, listen, I buy tickets to the Jets. I'm right, I'm right near this. I'm probably a half hour from the stadium and I get the stuff. I don't feel like a fan. I just don't. I don't feel like I'm treated as a, uh, uh, a fan of those brands, even though I buy tickets. I feel like I'm being sold stuff all the time. It's and, interesting. And I, don't, and I don't know, maybe it's different stadiums. I'm also in a very high market. I'm in a, an expensive market. Um, some do, I think, do it really well, but I think you have to have a real appreciation to say the people and investment you can, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether you're in sports or theater, the power of shaking someone's hand or making them feel like you're shaking their hand, you're looking in the eyes and saying, thank you. There's a thousand ways you could play that out from a seat upgrade to a custom note to like, I'm just going to give you this, a random acts of kindness is really people real investments in that. And I think some sports teams are probably doing it really well and others aren't, but that gets lost because that gets lost. Where does that live in the stat? 
what stat does that live in? That lives into retention. And the problem that I think I'm seeing is that on the retention side for ticketing, everyone now lives under the belief that people want to make last minute decisions. No one wants to plan anymore. So what we do is I see this in all industries, subscriptions, season passes, a lot of that stuff is falling. So what happens is, and that usually is one of the indicators of how strong is our fan base. And as those numbers start to fall, my fear is that a global, a bigger industry macro trend is that people are, are confusing two very separate points of thinking of, hey, look, we're not going to be able to, they're, they're confusing fandom. And that's usually where they invest. And they're starting to say, you know what, people aren't subscribing anymore. We got to go about single tickets and things like that. And what they're going to end up doing is underfunding their time and energy towards treating fans like gold. And it's just, that's changing. And yeah. that's terrible. That's not a good way of, of doing business. I think, um, I mean, and, and, you know, I, I think it's an interesting contrast, perhaps. And it's a, I think there's always, you know, the different categories matter quite a bit. And one of the things that different, perhaps different from theater versus sports, right, is that, you know, like you're saying, people don't go to the same play multiple times, but people will go to that same baseball stadium, you know, yeah. 81 times a year. And so, so I'm getting the sense you're saying that you don't think there's enough investment in the, I mean, kind of old school relationship management and all this in terms of, you know, touching those customers and acknowledge, and look, customer lifetime value in sports, I encourage everyone out there to do a sort of a back of the envelope calculation because some of the numbers can get just astonishing. If like if someone's paying $200 a seat, they're buying four seats, they're going to 81 games, they're sticking around for 20 years amazing numbers right pop off the screen you know i think that and, and you might hear pipes banging behind me this is the new york city uh <laughs> heat kicking in um i think the i'll say i could tell you a, again an example of just for new york alone one of the major changes as relates to the as relates to the broadway industry the the other major thing about if we're talking about fandom across theater arts and sports as it relates to seeing the experience live let's let's put a framework around it it's a limited supply business, right? There's so many seats you can sell. I can't oversell a Giants game, right? There's only so many tickets in there. And the same with like theater. So the, the fact that there's only so many seats in there makes it, um, we, we have this new tension beginning to form against with technology that's enabling us to go to a variable ticketing model, which has happened over the past decade and then some. So what's happened is essentially it's the highest bidder wins, and when you have a limited supply business, you can see the pressure happening on any, all these executives. How do, you ride, how do you grow revenue in a limited supply business? You either have to find new supply chains, right? Or either create new stadiums, new buildings, new streaming rights. And that's what everyone's doing. Theater has really struggled with that. So what theater has to do is effectively raise ticket prices, right? And if you have a variable ticketing technology that effectively is going to say, this ticket is $150. And now you have 75% of the world of, of their market coming a, a domestic tourist or an international tourist. Who do you think is willing to spend more on that $150 ticket? Someone who just flew here from Australia. They're only here for three days, the five days. This is their only chance to go see a show. Or someone who lives 25 miles from New Jersey who might come in. Yeah. And what it's doing is putting pressure on that ticket and the international tourists, not always, but saying many times, it's going to put pressure. They're going to win because it, it's, mm -hmm. it, it changes the dynamic. So once you do that, once you're in that zone, the idea of loyalty, because your revenue model requires it, goes out the window. The higher bid is, highest bid gets that ticket. 
And it's a real issue because, and, and for example, Broadway is seeing that right now, the past pandemic, every sports, every live event just witnessed something that's remarkable. Everything stopped yeah. over the past two years. Unlike you could never imagine it. And now we're telling people, come on back. So if you don't have a bond with the people who said, come on back, they're dealing with that right this very second. If they don't have the people who have the strongest bonds are going to win. And so I get worried in a limited supply business, the only way up is pressure on the ticket. That's it. And pressure on the ticket has, is the, at odds with loyalty. Look, Damien, you're actually like preaching to the choir. I mean, what, what you're saying, I, I came out of the airline industry in the, uh, in the 1990s. And as strange as that segue might sound, you know, the airline industry had this, uh, this almost strange model, right, where you had the people that were your most loyal customers were also paying the most, right? And then you had to lock them in with a loyalty program. And it, it's, to me, you know, I, sorry, I'm a professor. I can't help but put a little structure to it. I think what you're get, getting at is that there's this, you're trying to optimize the value of your inventory by pricing aggressively, by rationing inventory while simultaneously, you know, you got to be aware that maybe you're doing some damage to your customer relationships, right? If you're, if your pricing model is set up that, well, Damien, what's your maximum price? I'm going to charge you that because I've got data on you and I can figure that out. That is a, that is a loyalty destroyer, right? So it's this, this, this interplay between the inventory model, the inventory pricing model and this customer equity model. So I think you're dead. I think you're totally dead on with that. It's something I don't think people talk nearly enough about. Well, the other, and some of our industries, these are legacy businesses. Like, so why do we, if you look at just Broadway, for example, why do people pay $150 to $200? Uh, by the way, that's low. You want a premium seat? It's $400 a ticket. Why do people pay $400 a ticket for that? Like, what is, what's the rationale for that, right? There's a glow and there's a value chain that's been built over time for people to believe that's what it's worth. And that's on the backs of a lot of people over the years who've taken category treatment of like, we're going to create the crap, this category and it's going to grow. Baseball has the same thing, for whatever it's worth. Baseball has of any sport, right? There's a value thing, that thing. This new talent comes in to these, into these positions who don't follow the legacy of the past. There, there's a category value that who's looking at the category value over time. And there's not a lot of advocates for that. People are incentivized for the growth that's in front of them. And so it, what's happening is we're grinding, we're grinding, we're grinding. And this always makes me very worried. There's only one way up. And like, mm -hmm. everyone's got sales goals of 20%. No one's kind of going, what, there's very little customer retention focus as much as there is overall revenue growth. It's going to come from new audiences. And technology has strengthened the, the, the sophistication. You know, you were in the airline industry and see where it is now. The sophistication of what the technology can do on matching you with the price and grinding that price up is remarkable. Broadway, Broadway almost doubled its revenue in like a five or 10 year period of time. A five year period, it's remarkable. Five years, something like that, with the same capacity. Yeah. Someone's paying for that. There's, there's a cost there somewhere. And loyalty, right. you know, um, and so it's, it's just, it, my, my worry is, it's less about the, my worry is, is who is the talent, the staffing, the advocate, who are the groups of people that are responsible for the category, the long-term legacy? And and not let the the long sustaining the legacy of that, so I don't. The, and then when they're not there, so the other side of my business, we're doing campaigns right now talking about the metaverse. So I'm having meetings literally in the metaverse, talking about creating live experience in the metaverse. 
the, there will be a t- uh, okay sorry the meetings are in the metaverse at this point which is great yeah we have meetings where we do purposely go and we we have a fair number of meetings in that space. um but you know like you're there and you're just sort of seeing how these dynamics are playing out in the next younger generation of people that's what i'm saying we don't we see what we see we see what we know and what's happening is there's going to be a competitive pressure happened over the last two years where everyone sat home and said i can get my entertainment at home and we believe, and I'm pretty bullish on this, people are going to want to come back at live experiences in mass. Well, but if you if that's not treated of the people that are most likely to do that, and this is a runaway train, the technology is only getting stronger to say, stay home. There's a lot of great things you could do with this new technology. And so brands need to recognize, understand that. And for some, they'll probably be okay. Sports may be able to go into that space and dominate. Maybe, maybe not. You know, so just I think it's a very real issue, right? The you know, using pricing to extract all the value and pushing some people that used to be in the stands out of the stands, the, those long term consequences I, they're just they're just not known, right? I mean and and I do think we're seeing you know, you I, I'm sort of going back and forth on my next question to you. You know, one of the things I think happened with sports, right, is they kind of pushed some of the families and the kids out of the buildings, right? When you started to go $300 a ticket versus $50 a ticket, um, <clears throat> which I think creates some concerns about, you know, getting that next generation in there. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, you know, sports took a took a hit with COVID. You know, TV ratings were off by league, you know, 30 40%. What happened with the arts? I mean, went, I assume that that went to zero for a for an crushed. period. Crushed. It was just it, it crushed. And the, the, the look at the employment numbers. It was the hardest hit sector by far. Um, you know, hospitality, restaurants, theater, like those, like the the uh, performing arts, crushed. Ninety percent of revenue, if not all of it, gone. So what happened? What they did during the pandemic is they pivoted to virtual for no other reason. And you know, and they created these virtual experiences with like live concerts on Zoom and things like that. And for the most part, and I don't say this in a derogatory way, terrible, not good experiences. But you know what? This was your fandom. People paid to watch it, to keep those people employed. And that was the motivation to keep the industry going? No question, because the yeah. experiences were not good. And they knew that. They were doing their best with what they had. I mean, think about socially distancing theater. It's just, it just doesn't work, right? So you have actors talking to each other. You, you, it's about emotion. And people would show up. It was our fandom. It's like, it's so heartwarming. People would go in the local communities and buy. You'd get, we sell thousands of virtual experiences for people to go see something. And they would say, we're doing this to support our artists. They can't make a living. That's the way they make their living. So then you don't want the arts to shut down in your community. Big part of re- everything is centered around that idea. So I'd say during, it was just decimated, the arts. And now, thankfully, there were like, there's big government programs that helped. One called SVOG was, was like kind of a, a shuttered venues grant that helped live events. Um, so money was pumped to help, but not all. It's, it's still gonna, it's going to take a long time to recover. The talent much, was crushed. How much of it has come back? Say it again. Say it again. How much of it has come back? It just depends on the market. You know what I mean? Like, so New York City is open. We have an opening of a show. I work on the Michael Jackson musical. Open last night. Big crowds, and it's going to be a big success. Like, there's um. But it's at, um, there's just so many moving parts. You know what I mean? And, and like I'm in the UK, we have an office in the UK. UK is now on, on a different trajectory. So like the short answer is things are back, but they're at a, a, 
not the same capacity for a whole range of reasons. So it would, there's layers. We also have more, uh, a big presence in Las Vegas too. So what I can do is I can look at the market. And so there's two, obviously two very obvious things right now. One is the, the state of the virus. And the state of the virus triggers a whole bunch of other things. Do you want to see a show in a mask for three hours? And so even if you could, do you want to? And you might go, well, for 400 bucks, I gotta wear a mask for three hours, I'll wait. Yeah. In the markets where the masks come off, you start to see people going more comfortable to going. And then there's public, there's health and safety, there's crime in certain markets, like New York right now doesn't have the best headlines right now. So there's like all these kind of like moving parts. But like I can go to a jet, went to a jet game a couple of weeks, well, four, however many weeks ago, no mask, like you don't have, you don't even I'm vaccinated. So it's just, it depends on really the types of things, but closed door things, you know. Meanwhile, they lost, they played the Bills. It was like, I brought my kids to that first football game. It was like, I was like, we'll go to the Jets. It's like, 40 my son likes the bills yeah and that's it. Sticks. i'm like this wasn't a good one son sorry you know it's interesting when you talk about football because we you know we sort of ran this live experiment in the south with you know a hundred thousand people in these sec stadiums last fall um oh, yeah and and they're not a mass to be seen it's uh, such it's such different world that's the other thing too in my world it's so different i'll have one conversation with a client and then but new york city we're in court it kind of the epicenter of it and college sports is different over here it's just um in its aggregate, though, everyone is sort of, um, uh, and, and the arts leans more liberal in general. And if you look at the research on liberal views as it relates to the pandemic, they're more likely to be on higher safety measures, whether that's right or not. It's just what it is. And there's an interesting string of times where by political affiliation, you're more likely to have more limitations, right? Yeah. Like, uh, policy. So I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, you're in New York, I'm in Atlanta, and as you move from the city core, you know, the conservative increases dramatically, like with every mile you drive, and the restrictions change where, you know, yeah. you'll still see people walking with masks outdoors in a park in the city, and then it's a whole different world as you get out. Um, where, where do you think it's, um, do you think it's going to come all the way back? Yes. In like, in, in my industry of higher ed, I tend to think we might be looking at something that's almost a little bit of permanent hybrid where, you know, some things can be virtual and some things are still in person. Hardcore performing arts, it's going to come all the way back? Yes, I do. Okay. I think that I think the opportunity, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot to unpack with the performing arts in general. I'd say a few things. One is that happened over the last two years is kind of a recognition of a lot of the inequities that exist in the business, right? There's a, a and, and you could really start to see as it relates I'll use the broad term diversity on stage to effectively say non-white performers in the space, behind the scenes on the acting. There's been a real, there's clear inequities that have begun to happen. Virtual technology, that's why I'm kind of bullish on kind of this hybrid, there's a hybrid universe where yes, people are coming back to the theaters, but why are we not creating really exciting virtual performance that can sit side by side with it? It opens up accessibility, opens up more stage, more stories, more audiences. When you're in a limited supply business, there's only so much you could do. Hey, remember, some of the theaters we're talking about have a thousand people. So even if it's amazing, how do I make it represent the communities we serve? And the arts have really struggled with that. It's a wealthy person's game. Mm. And so we're trying to change. If you want to change that dynamic, you got to change the supply. Supply is too tight. You got to open it up. So that's on, on one side. I feel like there's a big thing for that. You also need to open up the pipeline. I have a 501c3 called Situation Project, where we connect New York City public schools with the empty inventory that exists in theater and arts, performing arts. They leave millions of tickets unsold every year. And they're at 90% capacity, mind you. But it kind of, it's a stat that kind of slips through the cracks. We're at 90% capacity. I'm like, but 10% is about 2 million empty seats. 
So we take the 2 million empty seats and put them into public schools and get kids in there. Got to build the pipeline for the business. But more importantly, this is my bigger statement, is it's a, why would you not do that? The arts are so good for humanity. Why would you leave an empty seat? And so there's a big, so I'd say on that, I feel like, uh, I'm, I, A, I think it will come back. There's a lot of evidence that shows people are going to want to come back to performing arts. I think sports is in for a, a, a very different beast. I think the big events, and it's probably no different of work in the concert festival business. Some of the concert, the big ones are going to sell like crazy. The major markets, major games are going to sell like crazy. If it ain't amazing, I'm not convinced those businesses are going to, the, the live experience in sports, I think is going to really struggle. Uh, there are so many competing forces and online gambling and everything like that that's going. I'm hard. I think it's going to change. I don't know how it's going to change exactly. It is going to be the the pressure on people going, uh, the pressure on the ticket is going to reduce as it relates to going to live experiences for sports. I could be wrong for the NFL, what they used to be able to charge. I think the dynamic is going to change dramatically. Okay. So switching over to the youth and you mentioned uh, the situation project. Is that what it's called? The, okay. So (laughs) one of the challenges I think for almost every cultural entity at this point is generation Z has grown up not hanging out in the living room with their parents, watching stuff on TV. They've hung out in their bedroom, looking at stuff on a three inch phone. And, you know, they've also gotten used to watching YouTube content at 10 minutes an episode and Facebook content at three minutes an episode. Are they going to, you know, how is generation, and look, for the, yeah. at the price point, look, Generation Z, the oldest ones are about 25. They're not able to buy season tickets and Broadway tickets yet. Yeah. Are they going to start to show up in mass in sports or the performing arts? Well, I think there's, I've, there's a, a whole range of ways to think about that. Again, I think sports are in trouble unless they move their investment to looking at the fan relationship in person very different. And, and right, it's a throwaway. They don't spend enough money on. I see the budgets. The budget that they spend, for, it fascinates me. Broadway show has a, a, I don't even know what the math would be, a fraction of their capacity spends significantly more to sell those tickets than they do. They don't spend, the, the money and investment is not in the in-venue experience. It just isn't. Maybe for some it is, but it, so I think until that happens, I think there are so many other forces. And as a major sports fan myself, um, I can watch it on a VR headset. I can watch it anywhere. Me going there, it better be awesome. So I'd say the sports thing, I think is going to struggle to get younger people back unless they make it more experiential. And I, by the way, I don't think online gambling really helps that. I think it changes the, it could, it makes me, I'm still totally flabbergasted to where that goes and how that has a huge impact on the sport, on fandom. What are you a fan of? You're a fan on winning. And so I catch myself. I'm a Giants fan. I'm like, I hope they fumble so I make my money on my fantasy bet. So it's just, it's just extremely odd. And I'm a, I'll give you a focus group one on this, but there's that. Um, the On the arts and culture side, I think, listen, people lined up to go see a Spider-Man movie. People lined up to go see. And, and I think that I'm pretty bullish on it's a reasonably limited supply business. And I think over time, arts and cultural institutions and the more limited supply business will do I still think they're going to do very well. I'm not convinced that they need to get a 25-year-old today into their theater. They need to start nurturing that environment, which is going to come at their cost in a lot of ways. Theater, in many respects, is a lifestyle business, and you hit it at a certain lifestyle. It's a reason why I don't go to Lollapalooza. I'm old. When I was younger, I'd want to go to Lollapalooza. 
but there's a reason I like to go to environments where there, you know what I mean? In, in theater, you walk, look around the theater, most of the people are older. So I always try to tell people, where can you go to a, a experience with people generally your age that's doing some pretty cool uh, event? You can see Denzel Washington on a Broadway stage. You do that. So part of me feels like I'm not necessarily as worried of, am I selling a Broadway ticket to a 25-year-old for the sake of Broadway? I'm more interested in, is there arts education and other things that give you a reach for an affinity to, to want to do that in the future? I think that is, to, the, is kind of the bigger play. It's like with sports. I mean, sports is a big one. I, my town's pretty active. My kids are very active in it. But sports programs, they see what they're competing against. What you said before, they're competing against a screen. They're competing with esports. They're competing with things they didn't have to deal with before. And you could see enrollment, a lot of sports programs going down. The pandemic put that on steroids. And so uh, there's kind of all these dynamics, but I'm not as worried in a strange way. Like, um, I think it's just going to be different. Okay. But I'm not worried like our um, people, people are human. And we drive on relationship and connection. And yes, it's a lot better on screen than it used to be, but I'm not worried. I feel like if you create a great experience, people show up. And, and the last thing I'll say is that's the magic of limited supply. The magic of limited supply that every age relates to, particularly the younger folks, when you can't have something, you kind of want it. And that doesn't, that dynamic's not really gonna change if, if the, from a marketing perspective. It's not a scale business. Okay, Damien, you know, I don't want to, this, this has been great, and I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I want to give you an opportunity for a final word in all of this. Who does this stuff the best? I mean, you got such a wide range of clients, you know, and like I said, it's everywhere from, and I love, I love the fact that you have the Empire State Building, from a building to a soccer league to the opera, what out there is something that you would always point to and say, you know, this is someone that really gets it that people can learn from. It's hard because there's more individuals that I would say. So it's hard. I mean, I think that uh, I've worked on a significant number of experiences at this point. The experiences that really win are they give you a feeling worth feeling. And so I I really try to frame that with someone when I'm like, I'm going to give you my time to get off my couch and to this location. It's got to be something that's worth feeling. And they do it really well. I've seen so many flops from big brands like the NFL to National Geographic to these big giganto brands trying to create experiences that people go, not interesting when they go to it, even though they have these big brands. And they go and they'll look and they go, this isn't it. And the, the, the importance of delivering experience worth experiencing, a feeling worth feeling when you deliver an experience is a very one-to-one type thing. So I'll just, a micro example, I'll just say, well, I go to a show here in New York and I buy tickets. I buy a premium ticket. When I walk in, someone's like, oh, Mr. Bazadana, nice to see you as I was going down the aisle to see a show. I was like, whoa, that's high touch, like super high touch. And and I was on a small theater, but I equated, I'm going, oh, that, their understanding right there. I spent a decent amount of money and I'm being thanked for that. The performing art, there's performing arts organizations that recognize, oh, I've been there multiple times. They can kind of intercept you when you get there. You feel like you belong, you, not that you belong, they see you. The brands that are doing it really well make people see, feel seen. That's a, that's, it's just at the, at the root of it. And it's, I can't say there's like, I can't say, oh, that brand necessarily specifically gets it or that one, because all get it at moments. I went to, again, a Major League Soccer Red Bulls game in my area. It was raining like crazy. It was pouring. This was like years ago. And they had some of the team come out 
I'm like, high five the fans as they kind of came in for showing up to the game. I'm like, you got it. You see all those people that showed up? They felt like, man, you came out. And I told my son was like high five and some of the players, which was like, I think they were playing. They were, I'm like, you don't have to do that. San Francisco, when you go to a, a Giants game, San Francisco Giants game, they let you run on the field. There's certain things. There's certain, some do it really well. I always just feel like it's a high touch thing. I'm impressed everywhere I go, whether it's a restaurant or things. I'm always kind of looking for it. What they have in common is they make you feel seen at, 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 at all levels. And, and I just don't think the, if you look at who really is the chief experience officer for a lot of these brands, point that person out for me with brands. It kind of exists, but it's not invested in. And that's the unfortunate, that's where the, that's where the opportunity and the threat is. You don't invest in that, I think you're going to have major problems. I mean, COVID just accentuated that reality. An emphasis on building connections, great experiences to create communities that Kind of make it all happen. Sound about right? Yeah, totally. It's invest. It's it all comes down to that, and kind of invest. It's it's just an investment in your relationships. People can see through when they're not being respected and valued and seen and heard, especially pumping money out. We all know. We can all relate to this. I will tell you. I'll say. I'll end you with this. The best brand that I've ever worked with that has done that not not even as a client, as a consumer, American Express, by far, the best. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't think they're. They have too much of a presence up in New York City, though. I think they have a little bit. I think down here in the South, people would tell you they their favorite brand is Chick-fil-A in terms of yeah. that level of respect and experience, which I think is maybe a great way to end this, right? That it can be everything from a credit card company to a Broadway organization to a place selling chicken sandwiches. It's, it's, a, yeah, it's a good way of ending. You're right. So it's a good point. There's a thankfulness to uh, the people that make the business real. They don't for, it's like never forget where you came from. Right. And if you have that mentality, everyone follows it. It means something. So, no, thank you. I appreciate you having me. It was fun. Thank you, Damien Bazadana. Appreciate you a ton. Cool. Thanks, Mike.